0: please look with me at the first chapter of Luke. Your bulletin tells you that we'll begin reading at verse 67. We're going to back up a few verses and begin reading at verse 57 so that we have Zechariah's prophecy, what very likely could have been a prophecy sung, uh, so that we have it in its context. So, Join me at verse 57 of chapter 1 of Luke as we read this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, To guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word for his people. Let's pray for help in thinking and understanding his word. Lord, do help us. Do come. Do open our eyes. Open our minds. Open our Hearts, I pray for our hearts. Dear Jesus, this morning, please keep our minds from getting in the way of our hearts. Use our minds, but use our minds to penetrate our hearts that we might believe these things. With the praise of your grace. In your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. For those of you uh, who um, haven't maybe been with us, I, I see some folks who've not been with us the last couple of weeks. We're, we're looking at songs in the first couple of chapters of Luke. There is a lot of singing in the first couple of chapters of Luke. Mary has been singing. Uh, Elizabeth. Uh, was probably singing. Not hard to imagine that she would have been singing after the miraculous in her judgment, uh, certainly extremely surprising conception that she experienced. Angels are going to sing. Simeon is going to sing on the day that Jesus is presented in the temple. There's a lot of singing, and the word rejoice occurs repeatedly. It appeared again in this passage we've We've read this morning, rejoicing is everywhere, singing is everywhere. And the singing on this particular occasion, whether Elizabeth's or perhaps Zechariah's, is on the occasion of the birth of John. And here is now this child promised, promised to an old man past hoping that he would ever be a father, promised to a woman, an old woman, past the years of being able to conceive and give birth, they are now parents. And Zechariah, who has been mute, unable to speak, and probably deaf as well, because the word that's used to describe A person who is mute can also be used to describe a person who is deaf. And maybe you picked it up in the text that when Elizabeth was asked what the name of the child would be, she said his name is John. Well, then the people made signs to Zechariah asking him what the name would be. So he was probably both incapable of speaking and incapable of hearing. Ah, there it is again. Silence. He's not able to speak. He's not able to hear. And folks, what is it that breaks the silence yet again? It is the word that was given to Zechariah from God through the angel, his name will be John. And when God speaks, you remember the commercial? Even E.F. Hutton listens. That's a long time ago for you younger folks. When God speaks, the silence is broken. And it was broken. And Zechariah, erupts in this prophetic, and quite probably, certainly wouldn't be surprised to learn, this prophetic song, singing yet again. Now, we've read this prophecy, and we've followed the sequence of events here. But what I'd like for you to do with me this morning is actually go back to the beginning of this gospel. Right, we've, we've, we've looked a little bit at Mary. We've looked at her song. Before that, we looked at Zechariah and his experience in the temple and his muteness and his deafness. And now here is Zechariah erupting in song, erupting in praise, uttering this prophetic word under the inspiration by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I'd like to go back to the beginning of this gospel. And I'd like for us to ask this question. What was Theophilus thinking as he read this? What was Theophilus thinking, hearing, seeing, as he read what it is that Luke wrote? Go back to those first few verses. This is what Luke writes, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you might have certainty concerning the things you've been taught." What was Theophilus thinking? Well, I, I, I can just about promise you, can just about guarantee you, that Theophilus had some of the same thoughts running through his mind that you may have had running through your mind over the course of this last week or even this morning. Who's Theophilus? His name is a Greek name. He is most certainly a person of social standing, significant social standing. The little little manner in which he is addressed, he's addressed as most excellent Theophilus. That was an address that was used when when you would speak to someone who was in a position above you. Luke's a doctor, but he's addressing Theophilus as someone who is above him in social standing, in political influence, perhaps in both. And what is Luke doing in this long, 24-chapter-long letter, in effect, that he writes for Theophilus? Well, he tells us he's giving an orderly account of the things that Theophilus has heard about, that he has been taught And again, if you're Theophilus reading this, you're thinking immediately as you move into this gospel, there's a lot of tough stuff here. There's a lot of tough stuff here. So what is Theophilus hearing? Let me suggest a couple things. Theophilus is hearing sober history. Theophilus is hearing sober history. He's hearing tough stuff, things like miracles and miraculous conceptions and angelic beings. He's hearing all of that rooted, grounded, connected to, woven into real history, very recent real history. And here's the second thing that Theophilus is hearing. He's hearing of a living hope. He's hearing of something rooted in history, and he's hearing of a living hope. Okay, think about this. Think about this. First thing, he's hearing sober history. Let me just remind you of what Luke says, the things accomplished among us. He's referring to things accomplished among us, things seen, things observed, things done, things out in the open, things verifiable, things knowable, not things done hidden in a corner or in secret someplace. That's a recurring thing in the Gospels. Matthew does a similar thing in his own way. You read Matthew's Gospel, the first thing you get is a genealogy connecting Jesus Christ to real people, people about whom the readers of Matthew's Gospel knew a lot. John does a similar thing. Read his first letter. John, in his opening verses of that first letter, reminds his readers that he's writing about stuff that has been seen, that has been heard, that has been handled concerning the word of life. Right? Rooted in, woven into the fabric of real history. Luke says in verse 3 that he's followed things closely for some time. That is that he's researched these things. He's investigated these things. His gospel, a couple of college students home, some high school students here, his gospel is not a semester-long research paper. His gospel is a PhD dissertation that took years of research. Years of reflection to put together. Chapter 1, verse 5. Listen to this. What's he doing? He's grounding this in real history. Stuff that he's researched. Stuff that he knows about. Stuff that he knows Theophilus was familiar with. Verse 5 of chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea. Herod, a known entity, known by Theophilus. Chapter 2, verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, a known quantity, a real event, an event known by Theophilus. He mentions Quirinius, the governor of Syria, the first census that occurred when Quirinius was governor of Syria, another known figure. See, so what does this do? What is Luke doing? He's fixing this gospel, connecting this gospel to real people living in a real place in real time. Here's the point, folks. This is not Narnia. This is not Malacandra. For those of you familiar with Lewis's uh, space trilogy. This is real place, real time. I, I, one, of, one of my sort of favorite authors is a fellow named Frederick Buechner, and he's written some really delightful, provocative, and delightful novels. And one of his novels is a novel entitled Brendan. Now listen to this first paragraph, and tell me if as you listen to this first paragraph you don't hear a difference... Between the way Beekner writes about his character, Brendan, and the way Luke writes about his character, Jesus Christ, and all of the surrounding characters. Eric said the night the boy was born, he saw the woods by the boy's house catch fire. It wasn't any common kind of fire either. It didn't burn bright here and not so bright there. It didn't have the higgledy-piggledy colors of a fire or a foul smoke to choke off your breath and set your eyes weeping. Eric said, no, it was in no way like that at all indeed. There was no higgledy-piggledy about it. There was no smoke. The whole woods went up in a single vast flame behind the house. And the color of the flame was such a fiery gold clear through that it turned the house gold and the eyes of Eric gold as he stood in the dark watching and waiting for the tide scudding in among the monstrous hills behind him. For a greater wonder still, Eric said, By the time dawn came and the boy was fully born out into the world and wrapped up snug as a badger against the chill, there wasn't so much as one dry twig blackened or the delicatest feather of a bird's wing singed. Now that's Narnia, folks. That's fairy tale. Really wonderful fairy tale. Really wonderful instructive stuff. A story that co-opts from the great story. Themes of redemption and salvation. But it's a fairy tale. You read Luke and you hear something very, very different, don't you? Yeah, you hear for sure about angels. And you hear about miraculous conceptions. And you hear about conversations between angels and human beings. And then you will hear about the whole of the heaven exploding and erupting because of a chorus of angels. And all of this, folks, is reported by Luke in a very matter-of-fact way in a very matter-of-fact way, in a very straightforward way. I suggested to you a couple of weeks ago that you read these first chapters and you watch for this, you observe how ordinary is the extraordinary in the Gospel of Luke. Luke weaves seamlessly these extraordinary things into this Narrative in which so much is so ordinary. We're not in Narnia, folks. You hop on H.G. Wells' time machine and you put it in reverse. You go back in our history. You'll bump into these things. You'll bump into these people. You'll bump into these events. Now, why do I mention this? I mention this because we live in a particular cultural moment. I mention this because we live in a cultural moment in which rationalism and empiricism, the rationalist, And empiricist mind dominates, prevails, and is pervasive in our culture. And let me just remind you, this is not to try to be smart or sophisticated or anything else, but let me just remind you what rationalism is when you distill it down. Rationalism, the rationalistic mind says, if I can't reason to it or make sense of it, it isn't true and empiricism says if I can't measure it it isn't true right if I can't smell it taste it touch it measure it in some way it isn't true and Christianity ends up being rejected out of hand as being impossible unreasonable childish juvenile in this modern, sophisticated world of ours in which things measurable and things reasoned to become the standard against which everything else is judged. Now, I have to plead with you and beg you that if that is where you are this morning, if you have fallen prey, to the rationalist, empiricist spirit of the day, you simply recognize this. There is a ton, a boatload in your world that you do not understand, but which you accept as being true. Not because you can reason to it. Not because you can measure it. It remains a mystery to you. Three examples. The prevailing models for the explanation of the origin of the universe require that energy be converted to mass. And nobody knows how that can happen. Everybody acknowledges and accepts that gravity is a reality. But do you know that nobody understands how it works? Nobody can explain how it works. And then there's this thing called, and I am not a scientist, but I have scientists who are friends. And so I vet this stuff with them before I bring it here on Sunday mornings. Then there's this thing called dark matter, which you can't see. We can't find it. We don't know how it works or exists or all of the implications, but it is there. And we don't know why or how. Folks, all I'm pleading with you about is that you contemplate and consider your own world view, if that is your worldview, and acknowledge that there is a whole host of things in your world which you cannot understand. So please, I beg you, because the stakes are so high, don't dismiss Luke's account of reality simply because you find things in it you cannot reason to, you cannot explain, you cannot measure. That is a really dangerous thing to do because the stakes are very, very high. And then let me suggest that you not do this other thing. And I don't take this personally. I frankly, I frankly don't care at one level that intellectual people, sophisticated people, think that I'm childish or juvenile. But please don't think that of Theophilus. Luke wrote this gospel For a man of social standing, quite likely a person of significant political influence. And remember his world. Remember that his world was the Greco-Roman world. Remember that his world was the world of Herodotus and Thucydides and Seneca and Virgil. Remember that his world is the world of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Remember that his world is a world in which Romans built roads and aqueducts that are still there today. Don't dismiss these people as being childish and juvenile or in some way wrapped up in some silly superstitious mystery. That is not Theophilus. And frankly, I think Theophilus would have loved Mary, When he read that first chapter and he heard of this angel exploding into the material world and having this conversation with Mary, I think he would have thrilled to read that Mary, verse 29, tried to discern what sort of greeting this was. The Greek word is the word from which we get our word, logic. Mary thought about this. Mary tried to understand this, and there's a little preposition that's attached to that word. It's the word through. She tried to reason this through. She tried to think this through. She didn't dismiss it out of hand, you see, because she had a different presupposition. Her presupposition was the presupposition that the infinite personal God who is really there can do things like this. He can break into the world that he has made and which he sustains. He can do it in the person of an angel. And a little bit later, the angel will say to Mary, Mary, you know this, nothing will be impossible with God. And so what does she do When they, with that presupposition? Not dismissing God, but living out the reality of what has been woven into the fabric of her existence from her childhood. What does she do? She tries to understand. She uses her mind to engage what she is encountering. And she goes, and I think Theophilus would have loved that. And she goes on to ask questions. How will this be? How will this be? Because I'm a virgin. And you know, I think there's a great deal more going on in Mary's head than just the question of a conception. I think Mary has other things going on because the promise that is made to her by the angel Verse 31 of chapter 1, she will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He, your son, Mary, will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Of his kingdom, there'll be no end. I don't think Mary was just thinking biology. I think Mary was thinking, wait a second. I'm not only a virgin, I'm poor, I'm obscure, I have no standing, I don't have royal blood in my veins. How does that happen? She asks questions. And I think Theophilus would have loved that as well. And the angel then speaks to her a peasant a poor little peasant girl who knew enough, we've said this before, who knew enough science to know how babies are made, as did Luke, who was a doctor. And Mary, this peasant girl, is not some gullible, Unsophisticated, pre modern, primitive teenager. She is a woman with a life sustaining presupposition. And that presupposition is the existence of the infinite personal God who is really there and who accounts for everything. From angels to gravity to the conversion of energy to mass, he is big enough to account for it all. Don't don't make the mistake of dismissing out of hand what comes to us from Luke as one who's investigated and looked at and explored and interviewed, you read the interaction that Gabriel has with Mary or with Zechariah, and you think, you know, this sounds very much like the stuff that would come from a personal interview. That's what Luke did. Traveled with Paul for a long time, was in Judea, had the opportunity to go to these places, talk to these people. He says, doesn't say it explicitly, but he says, and you can draw out the implication that he has investigated these things. He's talked to eyewitnesses. So please, please, let me ask you to read Luke and listen to Luke and to make room in your worldview for the God of heaven and earth who is sufficient to account for these things. Because if you don't, and here's where the stakes get incredibly high, if you don't make room for that God, I tell you, you give up, you forfeit the hope that is pervasive in these chapters and throughout the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. I just, I just want to observe this. I want to observe this second thing. That as Theophilus read this gospel, he would have have seen these remarkable things, extraordinary things, woven into the fabric of the ordinary. But even more importantly, he would have heard hope. He would have heard hope. Folks, this is a word you need. You need this word. I need this word. You need a word of hope. And I want you to listen again to Mary and then to Zechariah. We'll finally get to Zechariah in these last few minutes. I want you to listen to Mary. We made passing reference to this last week. But I want you to hear Mary and Zechariah singing of hope. Verse 50 of chapter 1, this is Mary. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. Now, before I finish this, let me just ask you to note that all of these verbs come over to us as in the past tense. Both in Zechariah's prophecy and in Mary's song. Then listen to Zechariah. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Now let me just make the point I made last week. Mary remains poor. Herod remains on the throne. Caesar Augustus remains Caesar Augustus. Self-righteous Pharisees, power-grabbing, self-righteous Pharisees are still running around Israel, belittling, berating, whether explicitly or by the implication of their theology, oh, if only you could be like us. acting as spiritual oppressors, acting as big brothers like the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son who didn't love his father enough to leave home and go find the wayward younger brother, but paddled around in his own self-righteousness, his own self-absorption. That's pervasive in this culture, folks, and it does not go away. And I said to you last week not only does Mary remain poor, but her son will remain poor. And her son, in the gracious, glorious providence of God, will become a target of the conspiracies of the lofty and the proud and the mighty. And he will die. So what's going on here? Folks, this is how you live the Christian life. Here's what's going on. Mary and Zechariah, along with the whole of the rest of the New Testament, drag future realities into the present so that those future realities define life for me and when those future realities begin to define life for me not current circumstances not political powers not socioeconomic realities not even racial and ethnic divisions when those future realities begin to define reality for me everything begins to change and joy erupts and explodes you understand what I'm saying? You as a Christian live moment by moment in the midst of this world. But what defines reality for you? What is it? It's the future. And that future has been dragged into the present so that those realities become the life altering, life shaping, define realities, defining realities of your life and mine. That's what happened for Mary. That's why she could sing. That's what happened for Zechariah. That's why under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he could proclaim this prophetic word. Because future realities, things, to use Paul's language, things not seen are more real than things that are seen. We don't look at things we see. We look at things we don't see. a friend of mine turned me on to, put me on to, an interview that Bill Moyers conducted with Bishop Desmond Tutu in 1999. Track this thing down, folks. You will learn some stuff. And in the course of that interview, Bill Moyers asked and this is kind of a paraphrase, but this is the gist of what he asked. Ask Bishop Desmond Tutu, how did you shepherd your people during the days of apartheid? Right? How did you shepherd your people? And he said, I reminded them, I told them three things. First, I reminded them of the kingdom of, Of God, that it is present. And I directed them to Revelation chapter 5 and the saints under the altar crying out, How long, how long, O Lord, until the day comes when you finish and bring to consummation what you have started? I told them, We're waiting for something bigger. In the end, we win. And so, invite your oppressors to join the winning side. Number two, be humble. Be humble. Because you are capable of doing to them everything they have done to you. This is a man, this is a man who understood and understands the depths of human sin and depravity. Be humble. For you are capable of doing to them everything that they have done to you. And then the last thing, And he said, this is the hardest thing. I remind them and I seek to convince them that the verdicts pronounced against them, whether literally in a court of law or by the voice of a culture which seeks to belittle them, the verdicts pronounced against them are not the last word. The last word is you, are a child of the king. Folks, that is future reality thinking. That is understanding future realities and having them define, moment by moment, my living in the midst of what the Heidelberg Catechism calls this sad world. Folks, it is sad. But there are realities that bring hope into the midst of it. So I plead with you again. I plead with you at this season of the year that you not dismiss these things as mere tradition. That you not dismiss this idea of the incarnation as something silly or frivolous that you not patronize people like Theophilus who heard from another well-educated man of this glorious weaving together of the ordinary and the extraordinary that birthed a lasting hope in the heart and soul of Mary, in the heart and soul of Zechariah, in the heart and soul 20 centuries later of Bishop Des- Desmond Tutu in South Africa and countless tens and hundreds of, Millions of people, please make room in your world for the God of heaven and earth who acts in this way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, God incarnate, having come into our world, you will come again. You will finish what you've started. You will glorify your Father, and he will exalt you, the Son. And today, it is the glorious, marvelous work of the Spirit and the glorious, marvelous privilege of the church to make these things real. Would you do that in our lives, each of us here in this room? And would you do it throughout this world to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.